This podcast is classified MA15 plus and is not suitable for listeners under the age of 15. It contains strong adult themes and violence. We got told by the police that they would definitely go to jail. We've definitely got them. We've definitely got enough evidence on them. It's an open and shut case. I would walk away now if I was ever involved in something like that now. I wouldn't give evidence. I would just walk away and keep and just keep quiet. It's just after one in the morning. Rex Robinson pulls his car off the main drag down a dark, narrow gravel track. Grassy area on one side, bushier on the other, and a public toilet block. It's a shadowland of nods, glances, and subtle come-ons. It's 1992. Rex is 25, with cropped hair and short moustache. He comes to this spot a lot, so he knows when something isn't quite right. He drove a Mercedes-Benz. If you saw a Mercedes-Benz at the beat, you did look and think, oh, God, who the fuck's down here in Mercedes-Benz? I mean, it's a little bit slutty, really, to be at a public toilet, at, you know, late at night. Well, obviously, people know what you're doing. What Rex is describing is a beat. Beat is a uniquely Australian term for places where men cruise for casual sex with other men. Secretive places. More popular back in the day before hookup sites and apps. With all kinds of men. Straight, gay, open or closeted. Beats are hidden. Discreet. Public toilets, local parks, car parks, shopping centres. Even more hidden when used at night. But it wasn't just about sex. It was a more social thing than anything else. You catch up with people that you only caught up with there. It was long before the days of mobile phones or anything. Half of these people, I didn't even know their names, but you went and spoke to them and, oh, yes, I'll see you tomorrow night and blah, 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 and that's how it used to be. Rex and his friends used to watch the married guys come in. They'd laugh at the desperation of it all and hide when the cops came rolling through or the cars full of yobbos hurling abuse. Bashings are common at beats. They have to keep their wits about them. I'm Mark Whittaker. I'm an investigative journalist. When I started digging through old unsolved murder cases and assaults around the country, one place kept popping up, Adelaide. While other Adelaide crimes like the disappearance of the Beaumont children and the Snowtown murders have made headlines, the cases I was interested in, like most gay hate crimes, seemed to have slipped by largely unnoticed. So I decided to focus on the city of churches, a socially progressive city, where on one hand, South Australia was leading the way in gay law reform, becoming the first state to decriminalise homosexuality, but on the other, men were being viciously bashed in the shadows. And this is not just a dark chapter in Australia's past. Some incidents are as recent as a few years ago, and the legacy lives on in both South Australian and Queensland law, where you can kill a bloke and potentially have it downgraded to manslaughter by saying, he came on to me. It's the so-called gay panic defence. More on that later. Back on the gravel strip, Rex gets to the end of the track, does a U-turn, starts cruising back. He rolls towards a valiant parked on the side of the track, pulling in behind it. The driver's gotten out, is leaning on the boot, his blonde mullet bright in Rex's headlights, arms folded, 
a ciggy dangling from his lips. Suddenly, something catches Rex's eye in the backseat of the Valiant. Her head's popped up, then down again. Someone's hiding. Something doesn't seem right. Not going to hang around to find out what. Rex drives out back onto the road, nervously checking his rear view mirror, making sure no one's following him. He's been followed before, chased and rear-ended every time he pulled up at a set of traffic lights. The car behind's tyres screeching as they pushed Rex's car forward into oncoming traffic, yelling, Faggot! So he makes sure it's all clear. Then he heads off to get some fuel. Ten or fifteen minutes go by. The risks are huge at Beats, but so is the allure. Rex heads back. As he turns onto the gravel track, this time he only sees one car left on the strip. There was a Mercedes-Benz with the door open, and a, which I thought was a bag in the middle of the road. Rex puts on his high beam to look at this thing lying on the road next to the Merc. He's wary. It could be a basher's trap. So I drove past it two or three times, looking out the window, thinking, what the hell is that? Rex realises the lump on the road is a man, face down, motionless. He pulls up alongside and winds down his window. Are you all right? Rex hears a weak moan. Help. As the guy slowly rolls over, revealing a face covered in blood. Veal Gardens is a meeting place for men who want to meet other men. I thought if I was going to look for laser lights, I could do it there as well as anywhere else. Jim Blacksland, not his real name, and that's not his real voice, was a 53-year-old fundraising manager for a prominent charity in Adelaide. He'd just finished doing the cross quiz in the newspaper around midnight when he got into his red Mercedes. He was off to house sit for a friend who was away. This particular night, Jim said he'd started to feel dizzy as he drove. So he pulled into Veal Gardens. He said he'd wanted to see what was happening down there and also to watch the Festival of Arts laser show. The laser show was part of the Adelaide Festival on at the time. Jim did actually see the light show and went to leave. But as he drove down the narrow gravel track out of Veal Gardens, the dizziness returned. So he says he pulled over. Maybe he dozed off. When he refocused, unsure if he'd even slept, he noticed a car parked behind him about 10 to 15 feet back. There was a youngish man sitting on the bonnet of the vehicle. I looked around me, and I looked into the rear vision mirror, and I couldn't see anyone else around. I got out to see who this person was and to see what he was doing, maybe strike up an acquaintance. Jim went and sat on the back corner of his car, about three metres from the young guy who was leaning on the Valiant. They talked about cars and the laser show. He kept looking at me with a smiling face. Do you come here often? No, not very often at all. Suddenly, someone grabbed Jim from behind. His head was twisted and forced to the ground. He was hit with a hard object, then kicked and hit over and over. Jim felt something cover his mouth and nose, but he managed to get a leg free and lashed out, begging for them to leave him alone. If you want money, take it. We'll I'll take give what it we want. You. You've got no say. Face down in the gravel, Jim heard someone walk to the car. That was the last thing he remembers. Then a voice. Try and hold on. There's an ambulance coming. 
The next day, the vicious bashing in Veal Gardens made the TV news. Jim Blackson was no longer face down in the gravel, but lying in hospital in a coma with a fractured skull, broken cheekbone and a broken eye socket. His leg was also broken, as were some ribs. Soon after the story went to air, 21-year-old Robert Verko and his 20-year-old friend Jason Londima walked into an Adelaide police station with their parents and handed themselves in. The detective interviewed Robert Verko first. In his statement, Robert said, oh, We were parked in the South Parklands. I got out to go to the toilet. A car pulled up in front of my car. Fella comes out towards me and started talking, asking me if I'd go there often, and said, Oh, do you like older men? He claimed Jim Blackson had then tried to touch him on the testicles. A struggle broke out and he called out to his friend Jason. He came out of the car and then it just got out of hand. This fellow fell down. We panicked and took off. The detective asked if Jason had punched Jim Blacksland. We had a few drinks, so I was, it wasn't too clear. Robert said he and Jason had started smoking cones the previous morning, then drank cider through the afternoon, then gone to the Century Hotel in Adelaide that night and drunk five or six more beers. Then on the way home, they thought it'd be a good idea to punch a few more cones. So they pulled off the road and then onto this little narrow gravel track in the South Parklands. Completely unaware, Robert said, they'd just driven into one of Adelaide's busiest beats. He denied they'd gone there to bash gay men. The detective wanted to confirm with Robert that there'd been no aggression from Jim Blacksland. Nah, but like I said, it's just, it's just not on what he did. When it comes to touching other people up, especially from a stranger, I mean, fair enough at work. When mates want to give you a slap on the bum, but you know it's only mucking around. You know he's going home to his girlfriend. Robert claimed to police that when he'd first woken up the next morning, he didn't remember anything of what had happened. And then it just clicked that we did have a fight. And I saw it on the news and it shook me up. When we finished, I stood up and this fellow was lying there. And I thought, wow, what have we done? We've killed him. Jason's version of what happened was consistent with Robert's. After a bit of work from the detective, Jason finally told her he'd grabbed a metre-long jack handle that just happened to be lying on the floor of Robert's back seat. Jason admitted hitting Jim Blackson a couple of times, that they'd panicked and left. Like Robert, he denied knowing it was a beat, said he'd heard there were, quote, pofters around, but I've never even really seen one, and he denied going there to seek them out. The case went to trial, and Robert and Jason remained consistent in their story throughout the committal and cross-examination. The atmosphere at the trial was tense. Rex Robinson was one of the witnesses, and can still hear the yelling coming from the public gallery as he walked into that courtroom. They did it to, I think, everyone that went up. Pofter, all sorts of things, the judge was letting it go. How could you allow that? The judge said nothing, absolutely nothing. In his summation at the end of the trial, the judge told the jury it came down to who they believed. It was up to them whether or not they believed a homosexual advance was sufficient to explain the violent bashing of Jim Blacksland. So that may sound a little odd, 
that a come-on from a gay man is enough to justify such a violent response. This is what's known as the gay panic defence, or the homosexual advance defence. It's the idea that a romantic or sexual advance from a gay man could be so overwhelmingly unpleasant, so threatening, that it may cause someone to lose their mind in a violent, temporary insanity. So much so that the person then reacts in a recklessly murderous fashion that wouldn't have been part of their character otherwise. Now, Jim Blackson was bashed in 1992. So maybe you're thinking this is at least some archaic legal defence from the history books that's now been wiped out, right? Wrong. While the defence can't be found in legislation, it's entrenched in case law, which apparently still gives it the force of law under the umbrella term of provocation. And it can still be used as a defence to this day in Queensland and South Australia. So... Back to trial, a trial where the jury had heard Rex's evidence that Robert was loitering on his boot watching the cars go by, as Jim Blacksland had said, and not just quickly dashing out for a leak, as Jason and Robert had claimed. And they'd also heard another witness's evidence that he'd seen a young man pulling a jack out of the boot of a matching Valiant on a nearby street. After all this evidence had been presented, the jury's verdict? not guilty. They must have believed the ferocity of the response was reasonable. Robert Verko and Jason Londima were acquitted. We're really angry that the result came out the way in which it did. We thought, and everybody else did, that it was a completely clear-cut case. You have a man who's been seriously damaged, obviously bashed, and the findings are that no one's to blame for it. It's ridiculous. Kenton Penley, then spokesman for Lesbian and Gay Community Action. For the non-homosexual who holds some form of homophobia and hatred, it's uh, almost suggesting to them that if they were to go out and bash a gay man and then later claim that that gay man made sexual advances to them, that they'd be let off the hook for it, that there's some sort of exemption from that kind of crime. What it says to the Adelaide gay community is, you better be careful, because if anything happens to you, you, the victim, might be at blame for it. Soon after the verdict, a rally was held outside the Attorney-General's office, where activist Ian Purcell addressed the crowd. Who would have believed that South Australia, which proudly led the world in gay law reform in the 1970s, would, in 1992, see a jury set free two men who brutally bashed a gay man with a three-foot metal bar? Shame, South Australia, shame. Well, I lost my job over that. Yeah. Everybody thought I was gay, but nobody had enough guts to say anything. When that was on the news, my boss said to me, I think it's time that you left. And I said, is it because of the court case? And he said, well, that'll be your word against mine. Why not? Rex Robinson. I was treated like shit, basically like shit. Not only from the people at the court, the police, the people I work for. I lost an awful lot because of that case, all because I stood up and yeah. helped this guy. It was an horrific thing to go through. I was treated like I was the criminal. I would walk away now if I was ever involved in something like that now. I wouldn't give evidence. I would just walk away and, keep, and just keep quiet. On many occasions during this investigation, I've been told stories of gay men attempting to report violent crimes against them to the cops. 
but who were basically laughed out of the police station when the officer heard their story. And they never went back. For their part, the police had an ingrained culture of viewing the homosexual community as criminals, because for a long time they were. South Australia decriminalised homosexuality in 1975, the first Australian state to do so. But before this, homosexual men were targeted not only by bashers and gangs, but by the police too. Like the rest of the country, South Australia had a special police vice squad dedicated to tracking down and arresting homosexual men. Because it was an illegal activity, they were targeted by a number of groups, none less being certain members of the South Australian Police Department, and brutalised in a number of ways. And of course there was never any comeback because they couldn't report the events because it was a gay situation. So they virtually got done over pretty well. In the next episode of True Stories, we look into this dark chapter in Adelaide's history where crimes were too often ignored, obfuscated or outright covered up. A time when not only did some police turn a blind eye to what was going on, but were sometimes the perpetrators. People look back at that now and it really did bring to the fore not just the case of homosexuals being entrapped by police, being harassed by police, but allegedly for the first time being killed by police. We unpack one of South Australia's most notorious unsolved murders and speak with the police whistleblower who broke ranks. True Stories Season 3 is inspired by Deepwater, SBS's first cross-platform network event. Head to sbs.com.au forward slash true stories for more details. These stories are adapted from Mark Whitaker's long-read investigation into a series of Adelaide gay hate murders, which will be published online at the end of the season. True Stories is an SBS online production. Told by Mark Whitaker. Music and sound by Martin Peralta. Produced by Gina McEwen. Illustrations by Jeremy Lord. And commissioned by Kylie Bolton and Ben Napastek.